You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it's nearing the end of an era, but it feels like coming home. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 176 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Nickel, and my job is covering the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on my two favorite Green Lantern characters, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. And today we're truly entering the home stretch as we are finally out of the tremendously unfortunate Ben Ray run. <sighs> Just threw up in my mouth a little bit thinking about those books. And we're back with the writer who debuted and defined Green Lantern Kyle Rayner, Mr. Ron Mars. And with every hope that I can muster, I believe that Ron Mars will drag Kyle Rayner out of the downward spiral Ben Ray printed through and bring this era of Green Lantern to a satisfying conclusion. And it all starts here with issue 176, an issue entitled Homecoming Part 1. And that's homecoming with a question mark, so that's an interesting idea. After a deus ex machina, Kyle is back in the city that never sleeps, ready to take back his life. But things have changed since the time that he was gone, as Jon Stewart has taken on the role of Earth's Green Lantern, and Jenny Lynn Hayden became a complete and total whore. Sorry, still bitter. But fortunately, I'm not alone this time out covering the book. This time out, I'm joined by Legend. No, Legend doesn't even begin to describe who my guest is. He's a man who one day admits the likes of Odysseus and Hercules will be told about his exploits. He's a figure in podcasting that the likes of Kevin Smith and Adam Carolla only wish that they could produce one iota of quality in all of their shows that he does in his opening monologue. He is the one man that can change the course of mighty rivers with his voice alone. Ladies and gentlemen, for your listening pleasure, I am humbled to have as a guest on my show, the incomparable, impeccable, insightful, incorrigible, irascible, iconic, as well as iconoclastic, Trentus Magnus, Lord of all, all things awesome. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I gotta tell you, Sean, it's actually a lot of fun to be here. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I kind of owe you one anyway. In fact, I think I owe you more than one. You've been <laughs> on my show quite a few times. But I got to tell you, I read today's comic when I was on break uh, at work. And it, I can't, I just, I cannot wait to talk about this. I'm so excited about this comic. I love it. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really hoping that this is going to be uh, as much fun as I think it's going to be. Because this is, you have to understand, I was coming at this sort of like from the angle of, I guess I wasn't, I hadn't read this run, like this specific storyline, probably in a lot of years. And so I had forgotten how awesome this thing really is. So this is going to be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you. And it may have a bit to, to do with me coming out of the Ben Rabe run, which was so frustrating for me that I'm so glad to see Ron Mars back on it. And even Luke Ross, the guy who's doing the penciling for it, does an amazing job with the artwork. It, it would have been nice if we could have gotten Daryl Banks back, but just having Ron Mars on the book, I think, really elevates it. So I'm looking forward to getting to talk about this as well. But before we get into talking that, I'm going to go take a quick break. I'm going to play a couple of promos, probably a couple for Mr. Magnus's podcast, because it's awesome and you should listen to it. And once we get back from the promo break, we'll get right into our coverage of Green Lantern number 176. Can't wait. 
I'm afraid the end time is near, the cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get over and out unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear holocaust annihilating the terrified masses leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious cannibalistic mutated radiated and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge but against whom there are so few left alive starvation reigns supreme forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth. Plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath. And humankind, having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our Remains. This is extinction level event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. Hey everybody, Magnus here. Coming in July 2015 is Extinction Level Event, a new epic mega-series from Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Everybody loves those huge crossovers by Marvel and DC, and so I'll be talking about a bunch of them. Old ones and new ones, solo and with guests, as I make my way through some pretty memorable crossover events. This is Extinction Level Event. Coming in July 2015 from Trenus Magnus Punches Reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcast and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! William Buck Rogers. And many more. 
Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. We gotta get out of this place. In Country has re-upped for another tour, and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics' The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Most of the time I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows in general. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics themselves, so I use every eighth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality to subject the show to a borderline pornographic level of analysis, partly just to shoot the breeze about this awesome show, and partly to show the naysayers just how wrong they are about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And of course, I talk about Smallville in a way that's unrivaled in detail, unparalleled in epic scope, and unspeakably awesome in its awesomeness. Because I am Magnus, and awesome is how I do everything. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every 8th Tuesday, only at 2TrueFreaks.com. Okay, and we are back. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. This is Green Lantern number 176. Woo. This one was cover dated June 2004, released on tw- April 28th of 2004, with a cover price of 225 US and 350 Canada. The title again was Homecoming Question Mark, Part 1. The story was by Ron Mars. The penciler was Luke Ross. Inker was Rodney Ramos. Colorist was Moose Bowman. Letter was Ken Lopez. The associate editor was Steve Wacker. The editor was Peter Tomasi. And the cover art was by Brandon C. Peterson. In the beginning, there was light. An emerald light, wielded by the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott. After that, there was Hal Jordan, the next to take up the mantle of Earth's Green Lantern. He was the one that the Guardians of the Universe thought as being the greatest to wear the ring. Now there is Kyle Rayner, the last Green Lantern, who, despite gaining the ring through quote-unquote dumb luck, became the one who would nobly carry on the legacy of those who served before him. But now, standing outside in the rain, he wonders if this was truly what his life was destined for. After being stabbed by space stripper Liana for defeating Amon Sur in Black Circle, as well as saving Oa from being destroyed, Kyle magicked himself back to New York by projecting himself into a ring and willing it onto Terry Berg's finger. Yes, you heard me right. It is that convoluted. But with that crisis averted, he's ready to get back to living his life on Earth, and that means heading back to his apartment to meet with his completely faithful and supportive girlfriend, Jenny Lynn Hayden. 
and as he enters the apartment via the fire escape, Cal rings up a bouquet of roses and plans to surprise his not-at-all-sleeping-around girlfriend. Much to Cal's delight, he hears the shower going, and assuming that his committed and steadfast love might want some surprise shower nookie, Cal peels back the curtain. <laughs> but to his dismay, he doesn't encounter his honest and sincere love, but Hottie McEmerald Fever, who was trying to take time to wash away the various fluids and secretions obtained during his banging session with Jenny. <laughs> <clears throat> and speaking of the whore, I mean, speaking of Jenny, she shows up to fill Kyle in what, on what was going on. Mostly that she was letting Hottie fill her in while Cal was away. You know, being a Green Lantern and doing Green Lantern stuff. Still bitter about that. <laughs> Kyle calls her out on not being able to keep her legs together for less than a few months and gets a slap to his face for his troubles. Saying that he thought Jenny would be wait for him, Kyle decides to leave, partially because Jenny broke his heart, but mostly because the stench of vaginal secretions is testing his gag reflex. Reflex. Sorry, I'm not really being objective here, am I? <laughs> I'm just going to mute myself, dude. You're killing me. I'm sorry. Um, luckily, Kyle doesn't just have a single place to stay at. In fact, the Moonbase Watchtower also has accommodations for the resident Green Lantern. Entering the monitor room, Kyle is greeted by the Martian Manhunter, John Jones, who welcomes him back and comments on his absence. Kyle says that he was out playing space cop, but now he's back and ready to help out wherever he's needed. However, it seems like all of Earth's major problems are being handled by the members of the League, including John Stewart, who is filled in as the JLA's resident Green Lantern. Sensing that he's become the fifth wheel, Kyle retires to his quarters, while John says that he'll let him know if the League needs him. Cal tries to settle in, but after a period of time feeling sorry for himself, Cal decides to take a trip back to the Big Apple. Landing outside his apartment, he sees the silhouette of Jenny walk past the window as she turns the lights off, probably preparing to do some reverse cowgirl on Hottie. Thinking that everything mattered to him is now gone, Cal walks alone through the rain-drenched streets. Meanwhile, at Slabside Penitentiary and wherever it is now in the DCU, a guard approaches Warden Norman with a prisoner release order. Looking at the signature for the race, the Warden realizes that this isn't some sort of mistake. The order is official. However, the Warden wonders why in the world would that signee want the release of the Green Lantern Slayer Fatality. The End. Right, Your Excellency, what are your thoughts on this book? Well, as I was uh, uh, saying a little bit earlier, I this is the first time I've actually read this this issue in quite a number of years, in fact. And so, the context of you know the, the story, what had been going on with Terry and everything, I'm not trying to be disrespectful or anything. It's just that I truly do not remember what you know what those things were. But one of the things that made this entire issue, not just like a particular page or one particular moment, this entire issue sang for me because the, to me, this is really what can happen with a character, not even whenever he's in the right hands, although there is that, but when a character is in the hands of his creator and I don't know what happens, there's some weird fifth element that takes over that somehow this character is more 
then uh, even in the best of hands, he's somehow more when Ron Mars writes him. And I think that somehow Ron Mars is better as a writer when he's writing Kyle. It's, I, I, I and I don't, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be rude when I say that because I've read a, a fair amount of, uh, Ron Mars's other stuff. None of which hits quite as hard as his work on Kyle Rayner. There's something that happens when he writes a Kyle Rayner story that I would almost want to compare it to what happens when you put Mark Wade on a, on a Wally West story, you know, or, and again, this is not to get a rise out of you. Uh, Jeff Johns on a Hal Jordan story. There's something that happens, but it has that extra sense of authenticity to it precisely because of the fact that Ron Mars, like Kyle Rayner is, is in a sense his baby and never does Kyle feel more Kyle to me than when Ron Mars writes it. Oh, I can't disagree with you. The, it, it is nice that at the end of Kyle's career from this era, that they do get the person who originated him back. And you're absolutely right. The voice of Kyle sounds right. His motivations sound right. Just the feel of the entire book puts you back to the idea of how he was originated in the early 90s, how he was this, and how he's progressed from that point in time. Uh, Having Ron Mars come in to write this is the best thing that they could have done, and I'm glad that he's getting his send-off. It's good. I was kind of worried that because he was getting this send-off, that that might not mean that he would have a sort of seat at the table once Hal Jordan didn't come back. Now, I, I it's not in the comic, you know, because I, I usually when I take my notes, I do it from one of the scans that I have. And I guess you had the same scan. At the back of the scan, it had that information for Rebirth in there. And I can only assume at the time that this was being written, because Rebirth, I think, came out pretty much immediately after issue 181 dropped. I think it came out the next month. So the fact that they were already prepping this could have given long-term readers of Green Lantern who were in the know and who were specifically fans of Kyle kind of pause to think what's going to happen with Kyle once Hal Jordan comes back. So I think it's, I think it's interesting that we're getting this one song, but I could see how it would lead to a little trepidation in the future. If you were such a big fan of Kyle. Yeah. And you know, since we're on, uh, the subject, um, I remember, you know, I, I was a little bit behind at the time that this, uh, that this issue was coming out. And so I wouldn't say that my reactions to it, you know, to it were necessarily like contemporaneous to everybody else's, but nevertheless, there, there, there is a chronology to it. I was just a bit of a few months off. That's all. It's just, it's timing. It's not substance. One of the, one of the real concerns that people had was, you know, what exactly does this portend? For Kyle, and you know, there is so much anger and bitterness and division in comic book fandom in general. I I really don't like uh, the prospect of stirring some up on my own. But I've got to tell you, you know, there were a, a lot of football spiking Hal fans who were saying, "See, mm-hmm. Kyle couldn't he he couldn't cut it uh, as the headliner of his own title, so we've got to bring back the real guy," and. I mean, like my response, you know, then as now, my response to that is, you know what? I am sure glad that nobody had that attitude, that Mm. same attitude about 
Hal, the newcomer, back in the late 60s and early 70s, I am really friggin' relieved. Because otherwise, you wouldn't have your guy. We'd be right back to Alan Scott. How do you like that? Mm-hmm. But... I was I was going to say, and I, I will give Jeff Johns credit, a lot of credit during the rebirth story that how went out of his way to make sure that Kyle was not marginalized in the battle with a uh, with a uh, Howland Sinestro. Mm-hmm. How basically said, don't you dare underestimate him. He was the one that kept the mantle going while I was gone. So Johns was not a person to marginalize any of the lanterns, you know, including John and including Guy. So, uh, you know, I think the people who were excited about Hal coming back and who were being dismissive of Kyle didn't realize that the writer who was going to come on, Jeff Johns, was actually going to, even though he's promoting Hal, he's not diminishing the other characters, which I was thankful for. Right. And and the thing is, it didn't have to be that way. I mean, I, I think that there's a tendency among comic book writers and people wonder where it comes from, you know, with comic book fans. Well look to the writers people but you know there's this tendency among a lot of writers that it's not enough that such and such character is awesome he has to be awesome at the expense of such and such other character Mm -hmm. you know and i think maybe the like prior to this whole hal kyle thing i think arguably the best example of that had to be ben riley and peter parker except it wasn't quite so evenly split everyone pretty much liked peter better than ben but there was <clears throat> there were a few people who really thought that you know Ben really is the way to go there weren't uh, there were like two or three of them i mean one of them went to the same lcs that i did so i know they were out there but it, it it's like i say i mean it wasn't it wasn't exactly as uh, evenly divided but there was nevertheless that this weird rivalry that was going on and then football spiking whenever uh, peter was uh, was you know brought back into the fold my god's honest opinion is that there are a ton of other writers out there who could have brought Hal Jordan back into action. And I think it would be fair to say that they would have found a way to give Kyle the middle finger in the process of doing it if they'd had the chance. And Mm -hmm. I think it's actually to the entire Green Lantern franchise's lasting and enduring benefit that it didn't play out that way. That in fact, that I would say you can draw a fairly straight line between that one little bit of dialogue and what would like rebirth number five or six or whatever issue that was to Kyle Rayner, the new guardian. You know, I think that that idea of holding Kyle up as, you know, the torchbearer, the guy that was there for arguably the entire core when they literally could not be there for themselves. And it, it starts, I think these things always start very small and then it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs until it gets to the point where this guy now has mastery over, I think arguably the entire emotional spectrum. Show me anyone else who, who can make that same claim. You know, I don't even think how, you know, how Jordan Almighty can make that claim. So, you know, as you say, the one thing that did not happen was that Kyle Rayner was sort of swept aside and swept under the rug. That never happened. But number one, we were right to worry about that. And number two, I think it was only, you know, by the grace of God that it was Jeff Johns who wrote uh, the story where Hal came back. Yeah, it could have gone the other way had any other writer been been given the gig. So, you know, kudos to Jeff Johns for, uh, I guess, being honest with the material and with the fans. 
I agree. You know, it's it, it it could have gone so so poorly if there would have been someone who was in the camp that Hal should have. You know, and I don't want to put blame on Dan DiDio. I know Dan DiDio had the idea of wanting to have legacy characters back, but I'm glad that Johns wrote the story where he had the legacy characters come back, but at the time it didn't also negate everything that happened prior to this with um with Kyle. So that's that's a credit to him. Um do you want to go specifically through some of the things in the book? I've got kind of notes if you just want to come along with me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, believe me, I got plenty uh, I've got plenty to say about a ton of this. So, okay. uh, uh, lead the way, sir. Um starting off with the cover, there's it's nothing really awesome about it. I do like the fact that it has coming home. It does give you this idea that that there is going to be a sort of wrap up to the storyline. Uh, what's his name? Brandon Peterson does some good art. I don't know. I know he's done art for a lot of other stuff, but I can't. Nothing's really ringing off the top of my head. But it's it's okay, I guess. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, the the thing about it was. For a story like this, you know, you, when you start, I guess, the wind-up of a series, and you know that this is going to be the wind-up of a series, to me, I think the covers really have to kind of go that extra mile in terms of not just being eye-catching the way that a normal cover has to be, but you, I, I would almost want to say that it needs to sort of summarize this character's growth and journey. And I mean this in a sort of ideal sense, like in a perfect world, this sort of artsy-fartsy symbolism would would, would be brought home to – uh, would be brought to bear. And so here you've got this sort of stationary Green Lantern fist. I think we can infer that it's Kyle's fist. But he's in outer space, and right above it it says, Coming Home. So it's in a weird kind of way, there's a, a mission statement going on here. But if you really want to read between the lines and bend spoons a little bit, I think what you could infer is that the emptiness of space and the hollowness of it all somehow is a literal representation of what Kyle goes through in this story where he feels like he literally has no place to hang his hat. Nothing feels right. He doesn't have a home as such. And there's a degree to which he's not even really needed with the JLA. And all of that is, I don't know, maybe I'm reaching here, but it just, it feels like, you know what, you can infer certain aspects of the story based on what you see and what you don't see on the cover. And so um, coming home, printed on a cover that has so much of outer space on it. Somebody I think is being a little bit cheeky here, you know? Yeah, that that's a good catch there. That Kyle coming home should be a celebratory thing. It should be him reconnecting up everyone. But the unfortunate thing in the story is that once he get home, he realizes that things aren't the way he wanted it to be. It is it, there is a lot of emptiness in Kyle and the idea of him being out in space sort of it visually represents that em- emphasis or visually represents that. So that's, that's a good catch there. I'll, I'll completely cop the not even catching that. Um, moving into the book, this is just a nitpick on page one. And unfortunately these things aren't page numbered, but you know, whatever. Uh, it's a great shot of Alan Scott. I think Alan looks great. I, I always enjoy his costume, the classic look. However, this is just a nitpick. The architecture and the blimp sort of, make this out to be this is you know golden age green lantern so unfortunately the flag behind him is wrong 
Yes, it is. Up until, uh, I think Alaska and Hawaii, which is in like 1959, maybe. I yeah, 1959 remember. and 1960. Yeah. So uh, they we they wouldn't have the 50 stars on the flag, and the, the configuration of the flag is for the 50 stars. So just a minor nitpick, but otherwise a good good image of Allen. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, like the thing is, like what I was originally going to say was going to be a little bit of a smart alecky sort of remark, where you know, um, his outfit hasn't uh, it, it it hasn't really been. Trying to think of a, actually, I'm going to try to think of a nice. He's had more, shall we say, uh, garish outfits than this. This, I actually think it looks a little bit punk rock. But you know, if you think about, you know, what this poor man has been saddled with over the years, this is so far ahead of it. And I would almost want to say that, like, an outfit along these lines is actually miles ahead of even a lot of the uh, outfits that Alan wore through through the '90s. Mm-hmm. Like that whole Sentinel era, I, I think is what it was called. Yes. And it, it's like on the one hand, it was a wink toward what had come before, but it was still, for I guess at the time, very modern. And it feel it, it, there there came a point when I I think DC was just more comfortable putting Alan Scott in a little bit more of a. It, it's not exactly a, a, a an exact duplicate of his Golden Age outfit, but it was still. You, you still see the influence there, and they weren't so insecure that they had to put him in this sort of image chic type of outfit anymore. It was okay for him to be seen wearing something like this. And I really appreciate that, especially as we're coming to a, what, like you and I were talking about earlier, sort of the end of an era. We can get more into that in just a minute, but, uh, it felt like this was so honest with the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the simplicity of the costume, Kate be granted, and I do agree with you, in the 90s when he was in that Sentinel era, obviously they were aping Todd McFarlane because his cape was spawn-level lengths. Yeah. It, it it got somewhat ridiculous, and I think they've they've got it down to its true form here, and it's 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 representative of his original costume from the 1940s, but it's modernized to the art style of today, and it, it, it looks good. It looks like a uniform. It doesn't look like spandex like the majority of the rest of the Green Lantern uniforms. It looks like actual clothing, which I, I like to see an artist being able to draw. I agree. And like the thing is, it wasn't until I got to the very end. Thank God the covers, uh, or rather the credits, were actually put at the end of the issue. Because, you know, if you told me up front, dude, this is Luke friggin' Ross drawing this, I would have called you a liar. I mean, I've never been a huge Luke Ross guy. So when I, when I, when I came to the end of the issue and, you know, there it is, I was like, maybe the inker has a lot to do with it. I have no idea. But holy cow. I mean, I think the art throughout this entire issue is pretty good. This first page in particular. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. So kudos to him. I, I fully agree. Now, I have a question for you, and and then after this, I, I swear to God, I'll shut up about page one and we can move on. <laughs> but um, at the very bottom on the lower left-hand side, God, I cannot remember what you call it. It's that sim- – like that Nazi symbol. Am I the only one who kind of sees one of those and like that little brick on the bottom left-hand part of the page? Hmm. The sort of – the way it's sort of arching up. Um, yeah. You see that? It looks a little bit like a – Yeah, it does – yeah, you can't I know see the talk- bottom part of it, but you know it. Just, it it kind of makes me wonder, you know. <laughs> so. it, it, could it be you know him hoisting the flag over sort of a 
Nazi-occupied building that he's taken over. Because uh, blimps weren't really – that was more of a, a, a European thing. So yeah. it, it could be that he's standing over a you know, a, a Nazi building or a German building hoisting the American flag over it. That could be – that. that's a good catch. Yeah, I was just – yeah, I wanted to ask about that. So cool. All right. All right. Uh, then, of course, we get the two-page sort of money shot splash and – this is really see i don't have that much um relationship comic book wise with luke ross so seeing the splash i was just like okay luke ross must be a great artist because i can't fault this at all this is a really good representation of a lot of the green lanterns he gets so many even the background you can see specific lanterns from all different eras of course how John and Guy are up front, how being forefront, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really good. And even the guardians, they look a little different from the sort of stereotypical way Gil Kane would draw them, but they still have that, that sort of way that Julius Schwartz, you know, that, that sort of look of Julius Schwartz that Kane tried to put into the book. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with that. I, I was actually going to try to find a, a non-offensive way to point that out. So kudos for getting there first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, save me the trouble. Not a problem. Um, moving on, page three. Once again, I think yes. I think he does a great job drawing Kyle, and surprisingly, it's back in his original outfit. I I'm uh, you know I am still a fan of Kyle's '90s look. I think it was unique. I like the crab mass. I know some people don't. I like the gauntlets. It was nice to see this back again. I really uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm right there with you. Look, if he'd had, you know, all of these extraneous pockets and pouches and spikes and all this other bullshit that was going on, dude, I'd understand why people would bag on his outfit. <clears throat> but I mean, what you have is a guy who has. Really, for the first time in his life, his imagination is – he's an artist, and his imagination has taken off a leash. What did you expect him to, to to come up with here, people? You know, I mean, I think under the circumstances, I think he actually kept it pretty toned down, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I've always thought this was an awesome design, and if you don't like it, well, you're wrong. Exactly. Um, after that, you know, I we pretty much moved to – yeah, uh, let's see. I guess I'll go ahead and talk about – you know, page five, which Kyle is coming in on the sort of rocket cycle. And it's, again, it kind of feels it's in the dialogue. Kyle's explaining how he got from the last issue, which was the 175. He got killed by the stripper guardian, Liana. And he, you know, the story ended with Terry Berg having the ring on his finger and it glowing which kind of led me to think that the next issue is it going to be Terry Burr Green Lantern. Thankfully it wasn't. Kyle magicked his way by transporting himself to the ring and then taking the ring again. It seems kind of like a deus ex machina of Ron Mars going, well, that didn't work at all. I'm going to fix this and this is how. And and he just does it in like a couple of, uh, he does it in one panel, a couple of you know, word balloons, a couple of editor's notes just saying, this is what happened. Now I'm back. Forget about all that stuff the past couple of issues because it was crap, which I'm fine with. Yeah. Um, Ron Mars always struck, uh, struck me as the kind of writer who 
respects what came before, even if you can kind of read between the lines and figure, you know what, he didn't like this any more than we did. And I get that impression a couple of times here where he was just saying, okay, yeah, that stuff happened. Now on to more interesting things. And at the same time that he's doing all of that, he's also going straight, not as much as he would in just a few pages, but he's still going straight to to Kyle as a character. And one of the things that really hit me about this issue, this was actually the first page where I got a whole new, I guess, reminder of just what a, just how cool Ron Mars is, because he did not pick up Kyle Rayner where he left him as far as characterization is concerned. He didn't, I think it's common for a lot of writers to have characters in sort of default positions. And then they don't really advance the character. They always start things off in the exact same way. And it's almost like the character goes through the same exact character arc in every single issue or every single storyline or whatever it is that's going on. And up front, Ron Mars does not do that. He legitimizes everything that came before, even if he chooses not necessarily to dwell on that. And number one, that's the mark of a good writer. Number two, that's the mark of a mature person. And so I, I, I was very impressed with that. No, he didn't like it any more than we did, but he's still going to admit that, yes, in fact, this did happen. Let's just move on, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I agree with you. It's nice that they're they're acknowledging that's going on, that Kyle is, has grown from this and learned from this, but he's back to wanting to be what he was and still take on the aspects of all those things that happened before him, before it in that story. So yeah. Uh, my next notes on the page where Kyle enters through the, uh, fire escape window. It's a very, I know there was a very similar scene where Kyle came in in the window with, uh, ring construct roses before. I can't remember if this was with Donna. It might've been, but I know this has been done before. And that just leads into the whole awkward scene between him and Jenny. And, I went back and read, uh, there was a story, I think it was in Green Lantern, I've got it in my notes here, uh, I, no, I don't have the specific notes, but there was an issue where uh, Kyle was at a art show, and he was displaying some of his art, and Donna Troy showed up while he was dating Jenny. Uh-huh. Donna had already gone through her thing with John Byrne taking over her character and writing, I think, the Who Was Donna Troy storyline over in Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And that basically kind of jumbled her memory and mixed things around. And in that story, Kyle and Donna went out basically just to walk and talk. And at the end of the story, Kyle gave Donna a kiss to see if that would spark any memory. And it didn't. And they parted ways. And it was over. So that kind of brought out some problems in Jenny. She was uncomfortable with that. All of that pales into comparison with what Jenny has done. Obviously, you know, what's his name? Lucas or whatever has been knocking boots with Jenny. Yes. Um, she doesn't care. She's been allowing him to sleep over here. <sighs> this just frustrates me so much with this character who I thought it was just sorely misrepresented in this book. I know it's kind of akin to, say, a person in the military having to be deployed overseas 
and the wife having to stay at home and be by herself. For that amount of time, you don't go and sleep around if you are any kind of decent person. Kyle didn't do it. Kyle, when he was interacting with Donna, he didn't do anything on this level. Jenny did, and that really irritates me about the character. And well, even what what, what Kyle did was, when you think about it, there's a there's a nobility to it. There's a selflessness to it. He wasn't he he didn't kiss Donna because hey he wants to kiss Donna. I mean hey that's all a lot of us would really need. I mean come yes. on, friggin' Donna Troy, come are you kidding me? Come on. Mm-hmm. That's the least of what a lot of us would probably want to do. Mm-hmm. He was doing it really for her own good. And let's, he's a guy, so I'm not going to overlook the obvious. Yeah, I'm sure he chose that for a specific reason. But ultimately, he had ultra, uh, altruistic purposes, I would say. There is nothing, nothing altruistic about all of this. I mean, she did what she did here. Jenny did because. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You know, she was in the mood. She was lonely, whatever her thing was. Now, on top, now, up, up to this point, I, I still think that there's a, kind of a degree to which, you know, a lot of us would have been willing to cut her some slack. You know, I mean, people do crazy things when they're lonely, you know, crazy things. So that much I, I, I can get on board with. The one thing that she never says throughout this entire thing is, I was wrong and I'm sorry. She justifies. She makes excuses. She pins all the blame on Kyle. She says, you weren't here. You know, there was something somehow selfless about wanting to go out and protect the whole friggin' universe. On and on and on. The one thing she ne- she was never even remotely in any danger of doing throughout this entire exchange is taking responsibility for her actions. I truly think Kyle might have been willing to roll with it. Shit happens in life. Might have been his attitude. If she'd at least shown some sort of, I don't know, remorse, I guess. And she never even comes remotely close to that. That is not her agenda at all. That to me is where this becomes, um, <clears throat> I don't know, sort of like a commentary on, on who she is as a person. This is the kind of person that she is. And I hate to say it, Kyle, you bet on the wrong horse and you lost. And it sucks. I don't like it. I think the character arguably was really better than that. But nevertheless, this was the, this was the hand that, that Mars had been dealt and he, he had to play the ball where it lay. So I'm, don't confuse this as me bashing on him. I'm bashing on her. This was a, this was a shitty, shitty thing to do to somebody that you say that you love. And she never even tries to apologize. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that just really burns me up. Look, I mean, I, I don't want to get like too personal here, but I've been cheated on a couple of times, you know, and I've never actually caught it like quite so red handed as this, but I've been cheated on a couple of times. And, you know, I'm sorry to say that there, there was nothing in my personal, in one in particular, like one time when it happened in particular, there was nothing I had done to deserve this. I, I, I take no blame for that whatsoever. That's just who, like the person that I was with, that's just who she is. And better to find out when I did than God help me 30 years later, you know, and, but it still sucks. And uh, it's just it's one of those things that, you know, we all bring our per- our own personal baggage to these stories and they're meant to be entertaining and everything. But every now and then you encounter a story element that that just 
pushes your button and you react to it in a very emotional way. And so if people listening to this feel like I'm being emotional, I'll ride with that. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm somehow wrong about, you know, who and what Jenny is. I, I, I stand by it. She's, she's just a terrible person. I'm sorry. Simple as that. And, and here's the other thing. When Kyle actually calls her on it, she hits him. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't even say the word. She just hits him. You know? And there, like I say, she was never in any danger of making the right decision or saying the right thing throughout this entire exchange. And I'm just rambling now, so I'm giving you back the mic. No problem. Yeah, I, 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 once again, I'm in complete agreement with you. She has not been remorseful about this at all. She feels completely justified for her actions, which does not make any sense. She knows Kyle is a Green Lantern. She knows that he is the last Green Lantern. She realizes that his job is to patrol essentially the universe and try and take care of the worst people out there. Even if he's isolated to this sector, to Earth, the fact that the, the, the Black Circle or whatever, you know, infiltrated Earth and is trying to commit crimes in here, it's Kyle's job to go out in space and try and stop this. That's what he was doing. And the fact that she could not be trusted to be faithful during this amount of time when he was out doing his job really belittles the character and i think i don't think that this was how the character should have been i think this is a misrepresentation of the character that ron mars is having to come in and try in some way to get some sort of iota of reparations or trying to fix it in some way because I don't think if Ron Mars were continuing or if even Judd Winnick were continuing on with writing the character like this, that Jenny would be in any way doing this. This would not be an issue if it weren't for Ben Rabe writing her so poorly in these previous issues. I agree. And that's not to say that there aren't some enjoyable elements. I mean, when you think about, any, like the three, there are ultimately three people, briefly three people, but three people in this scene. The ones that aren't Jenny are actually, it's actually kind of, <clears throat> I don't, I, it's entertaining to read. I mean, because you've got, I can't even remember this prick's name, but you've Lucas got. Lucas or something. I call um, him Hottie Big Emerald Fever. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. Emerald Fever. Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, he's doing that kind of stereotypical guy thing. Hey, is this guy bothering you? And, it, it, dude, you have no idea what you're messing with here. I mean, this is Kyle friggin' Rayner. I mean, he has been to the top of the mountain. He has gone toe-to-toe with some of the scariest people in the entire world. And you mean to tell me that some twerp in his little bathrobe there is going to – what, you think you're going to front him? Get out of my face. And the beauty of it is, you know, Kyle, he, he dispenses with him. He just rings up a hand, pushes the dude in the bathroom, shuts the door, and he he barely even pays him any attention. Now, think about it. We've all seen it that <clears throat> a guy catches some somebody doinking his girlfriend. Rather than having it out with his girlfriend, he goes nuclear on uh, on the guy who may or may not have even known what was going on. Kyle, even here, he's still correctly prioritizing the situation, and he's dealing with the real problem here. He's still being so he's still showing a hero's judgment in a completely non-heroic situation, you know. 
Mm-hmm. And by the way, another thing that kind of <clears throat> that kind of bur- sorry, I, I have a really dry throat today. Another thing though that sort of burns my balls about Jenny's whole attitude here is think about who she is for just a minute, man. She's a she's a there's a degree to which she's kind of a superhero in her own right. Of it, look, it, any human, uh, and by which I mean just like any civilian that Kyle Rayner had ever hooked up with, and she was going to pull stuff like this. Well, she's not really in the club, and so she doesn't. She may not fully understand how things are, you know. Jenny should have known better, you know. You do not do this. She should have known better. And anyway, so I don't need to get back up on that soapbox. But honestly, that that really did just occur to me. No, so. I agree with you. As a hero, Jenny should have known that what Kyle wasn't doing was just going out and having a good old boy's time floating around in the universe. He was trying to be a hero, and she should have easily recognized that. And the fact that she was written to the fact where she thought Kyle gallivanting around the universe was just him being boyish and not actually trying to do what a Green Lantern is supposed to do is is a detriment to her character and it completely diminishes her and it puts her in the wrong, which is upsetting. But I, I want to get away from all of this. Sure. Um, let's move into the Watchtower. I am really glad that Kyle's first interaction with the JLA is with John Jones. John has always been, especially since he was kind of brought back in the in the 90s in the Morrison era JLA as the heart of the league. And I think it couldn't have been better for Kyle to come in and meet with the most sincere member of the Justice League and have him actually honestly say that he's happy to have him back. That there is no there is no deceit, there's no untruth to what John is saying. He's he's glad to see Kyle back, but unfortunately it gets to the point where the Justice League has everything taken care of and John Stewart has also been doing the work of Green Lantern and it just piles on more of that sort of feeling of dis- diminishment that Kyle has now. Um, I tend to agree with that, and actually, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to tackle that that specific thing. But then, actually, I do want to go backwards just a tiny bit. No problem. Um, keep in mind that there's a relationship here that's a little bit one-sided uh, with uh, Kyle's interactions with uh, with Jean. Right back in Martian Manhunter number one million, which oddly enough, I think was the first issue of that of that series. You had this moment where Kyle crash lands on Mars, and it, it it's to do with the story. I don't want to get too far into that, but he basically lands inside of Jean, basically is what happened. Mm-hmm. And it takes – and we're talking about the 853,000th uh, century, and so it takes – it takes Jean a little while to remember Kyle's name. He remembers the ring. He remembers this man. But it takes him a while. And if you think about it, I mean, that many centuries, who could blame the guy? But um, Or millennia, really. <clears throat> it takes a while for it all to, to, to finally settle back in for him. But eventually it does. And one of the things that, that, that comes out is that Jean always sort of regarded Kyle as an access point into the Justice League. I mean, his... He had a very this this very like brotherly love with Kyle that Kyle had been completely ignorant about all that time, 
and keep in mind, we're talking about future Jean here. So there were things that had happened that Kyle at that time didn't really know about. He didn't connect to. He wasn't aware of. But they were famous friends. I, I would almost go so far as to compare it to Kirk and Spock is basically what I took away from that story. And it, it admittedly, it did kind of come out of left field. But this was something that readers were supposed to kind of keep their eye on. And I think it's something that Kyle kept his eye on. And so here he is. He's kind of leveling with Jean. And I don't know if Jean necessarily has the free time to, you know, level with him right back or for that matter, the emotional faculties to do it. But he's happy to see his friend, too. And there it, it number one, Kyle had to come back and then he had to come back to the to the Justice League. And then the Justice League had to be away. And th- there had to be this moment, I think, where you had Kyle and Jean, it's like they're just missing each other. And there's a, a, there's a kind of sad element there that because of the relationship that they had, have had, will have, however you want to look at it, they're missing each other right now, but it's not always going to be that way. It had to be those two characters having this moment together. And again, I was reading that today and I'd totally forgotten about this moment, but it's weird that Kyle feels at once comforted by John and sort of alienated by him at the same time. And it's just, it's kind of sad. Now, to go exactly one page backwards, though, not to the apartment, but that sort of glory shot of uh, Kyle on final approach to a JLA headquarters, he's just remembering the time where he was the outsider on the team. He was the new guy. He was the rookie. He never really felt comfortable in his own skin hanging out with the likes of Superman and Wonder Woman and all those guys. That was the era in which Ron Mars started and then sort of left the character. That is not where Ron Mars is picking the character back up, and Ron Mars knows that. He's not writing Kyle, like I said before, he's not writing him in in default mode, where Kyle is perpetually the new guy. He always feels outside of everything. He's always struggling to prove himself. He's proved himself. He knows he's proved himself, and he knows he deserves a place on the team, and he says that with absolutely no ego about it. He says it, and he means it, and he knows it to be true, but he's not gloating. Does that make sense? He's he's comfortable yes. with this reality. And again, I mean, this is just some rock-solid writing, and, and, and I, I would almost want to say that, look, I mean, I'm not exactly a writer myself, but I would think that there's got to be a little bit of ownership that Ron Mars feels with Kyle and hey this is not where I left the character this is not the character that I want to write but he does but he doesn't he doesn't have this little this crybaby thing over it he he just rolls with it this is where the character is I'm picking up where the other guy left off for better or for worse and this is a character who's grown he's matured he's earned his spot on this team and he's every bit the hero as anyone else on the team and that just works for me I love it you know yeah, and it, again, it goes back to what you said at the beginning of the show that Ron Mars, a competent writer, has taken the fact that Kyle has progressed as a character, that he has advanced in his skills, and that he is now a competent hero on the likes of what Superman or Wonder Woman or or any of the members of the Justice League are. He's not this uncertain person who's like, oh, I'm I'm around these people who are who are 
almost deified by the people and he is feeling inferior. He knows that he's a part of the team and you're right. He doesn't approach this. He doesn't approach it as, you know, this is my job. I should be doing it. It's just, it is what it is. And uh, I think that it's a credit to Ron Mars as a writer that he portrays this without any, with a sort of humble fashion for Kyle. There's no, there's no grandiose. Well, now that I'm back, everything's going to be okay. And I, I like that he's wanting to try and help, but unfortunately, things are working against him once again, not only in his personal life with his girlfriend, but his sort of work life on Earth with uh, the Justice League. And I, I, I think only I think only John Jones could have been the person to tell him in this manner that he's not needed. Because it's not in a negative way. It's not John saying, well, we've got it all covered. You're not really needed here. It's just saying it's I guess it's the way that he's presenting it, because if it were someone like Wally, it would have been, you know, we've got this covered, Kyle. Why don't you take some time off? Because I think John, if things were dire and they needed Kyle to be there, he would be the first one to go go down there and do this. But it just so happens that, sadly, things are covered. And it just builds upon Kyle's feeling at this time that his time in space and him coming back to Earth is just a negative aspect now. So, Yeah, I agree with all of that, yes. <clears throat> um. I like the nine panel grid. I think that's a good use of it to sort of show whatever passage of time Kyle going to his quarters and sitting around and trying to watch a movie and just sort of stewing over his plight. The fact that things aren't actually working out the way that he expected them to go. I think that's a nice story element. And you don't see in the nine panel grid, especially like this very often in comics. No. Um, and then, you know, we, you know, again, I, I haven't really commented all that much on the art, but, uh, what I guess like page 20, maybe where Kyle was looking up at the window and there was the rain and everything. Luke Ross, I think does a really good job drawing the character. There's a lot of detail in the backgrounds, um, now I, now what, what do you know Luke Ross from specifically? Um, he had a, uh, <clears throat> he had a run, um, on, uh, the sensational Spider-Man. Uh, it was that, that weird sort of interstitial moment. Uh, and I swear to think it was only a moment when Dan Jurgens left, but before Mike Raringo took over. Okay. And I want to say it lasted for like eight or 10 months or something like that. And, you know, there was all of this hype. Now, and I realize we're talking about the 90s. Everything was hyped. I get that. But even by 90s standards, people were like, Luke Ross is drawing the sensational Spider-Man. Buy it. And so I thought, well, I guess if the guy's getting this kind of hype, there's got to be something here that's worth checking out. And so I picked it up, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's like like this is what people are are, are – spooching their pants over like 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 really hmm. uh, it's i didn't i didn't get it and i just thought that the you know the uh first off 
I realize that to to criticize anatomy and physiology too much in a Spider-Man comic, you're sort of on thin ice already to begin with, and I, I believe me, I get that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, dude, you know the um, I would have expected anybody who can hold a pencil professionally at Marvel Comics to be to to be able to do more than this. Especially whenever you start getting into the mid to late 90s when the writing really was on the wall for the industry. We can't rely on all flash and, and no substance anymore. Somebody who I felt like he had a, just a very boring line style. He really hadn't mastered a lot of the basics of storytelling on a page. And you're giving him one of your flagship friggin' characters. I mean, were you just that desperate to find somebody to continue the art chores on this book? I mean, was it really that, that important to you? So... There was that to think about. And to be fair, I think that was a lot earlier in Luke Ross's career, and he'd sh- shaken a lot of the, uh, a lot of those problems by the time he started up on this book. But it's just, it's a prejudice that's followed me around with his work for a very, you know, long time. And it was, anyway, I, I just, I don't know why, but I just felt like, you know, he goofed on Spider-Man, and so I never really forgave him for that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, here, like I said, if I'd known in advance that he was writing this story, I might have had my shields up a little bit. But he has this wonderful little, um, I don't know, it's this high fidelity moment where you've got John Cusack, I mean, Kyle Rayner, standing <laughs> out in the street and he's watching his girlfriend go to bed with somebody. And in fact, you know what? There's actually this moment. Maybe I'm the only one who sees it. I don't know. But to go sort of backwards, not in the conversation, but in the, uh, in the comic earlier on, he, it's this exact same moment. And you have this sort of semi close up of Kyle, uh, standing on the street watching that moment where what's her name, uh, turns off the light and you can kind of use your imagination what happens from there. Mm-hmm. And I swear to think on just for that one panel, Kyle sort of has a few Cusack isms going on. You know, and and uh, like the nose, really, and like the brow, that's really what does it. Like everything else, eh, I don't know. And then after that, it's totally normal Kyle for the rest of for the rest of the issue. But I swear to think, in that one moment, we're supposed to think of John Cusack standing in the rain watching his girlfriend, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, boff that friggin' loser. And it, it, and if you think about it, it does have a lot of the same emotional heft to it, so... I would almost want to call this sort of an homage, but it's just, it's a little too similar for me to think that it was a complete accident. And so anyway, but to answer your question, I never really forgave Luke Ross for doing a lackluster job on Spider-Man. Hmm. Well, I can say if, uh, you know, I'm hoping that he improved his form over this one because I'm, I'm very impressed with the art so far in this book. Ditto. Um, moving on to the last scene, we get a release order for fatality from, Slapside Penitentiary, wherever that is. I guess it might be in Antarctica now. I, you know, it it moves frequently. I guess. Mm-hmm. And all I can say is, um, it must be very cold in her cell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very you know, cold. You know, and again, the fatality has been drawn by a lot of the artists who drew her to be very voluptuous. But I think Loop Dobbs is going a bit. Well, I, I'm not saying he's going a bit over the top, but he's definitely accentuating parts of her figure which is fine but I, I i like this ending it's ron mars coming back to one of the main villains that was a part of his storyline a part of kyle rayner's storyline and bringing that villain back plus you've got this sort of idea that there's 
a mysterious entity in the government or whoever who's releasing fatality. And I've got an idea who that is because I've seen the covers and I know what's going on. But I'm again, I'm not really certain. But I like the fact that Ron Mars is kind of coming full circle and he's going to wrap up all these things. It feels like he's going to wrap up all these things that he put forward in his initial run in Green Lantern. And here at the end, he's going to give a sort of finality to it. So I, I really enjoyed this ending. I did too. And, you know, this was the moment, you know, reading this, uh, reading this last page, you know, where it's, it's homecoming question mark part one. And I really like it when, when this is done well, you get the credits at the very end of the story. Because in a weird kind of way, this did feel like sort of the end of an era for me, you know? Um, and not just for me, really. I guess really for, for, I would say for DC Comics, because, you know, we're, this is, and I don't know how to, how, how, far into this you want to go but we are kind of getting a getting into the era now where uh, green lantern rebirth is just around the corner and we've also got uh, secret identity uh, sorry identity crisis. Identity, identity crisis that's yeah. one my apologies um that's coming and that was i think a little bit of a game changer in in uh, uh dc's history where there's also i think the run-up to superman for tomorrow and I, there's an entire school of thought out there that says Superman has never truly recovered from that. And I somewhat subscribe to that myself. And it just kind of feels like, you know, this is – it's Ron Mars on Green Lantern, specifically Kyle Rayner. And it kind of feels like, you know what, this was sort of saying goodbye to everything that the 90s had been. For better or for worse, this was the end of an era. And – you know, you and I were talking about this a while ago. One of the things that I realized as I was reading the story was that if this is the way that I guess the 90s truly has to end, there are very few characters that would have been better to use than Kyle Rayner, written by Ron Mars. The only one that I can think of offhand that might have been better to say, you know, hasta la vista 90s, it was fun. We're moving on to whatever the future is going to bring to us now. The only character that and even this is completely arguable, you understand. But the only one that might have been better would have been specifically Jack Knight, written by James Robinson. Yes. And it, it, it's one of those things that sometimes you can lose. You Look, you've read a lot of comics in your day, so I, I think you, you, you can understand what it is sometimes that you're – occasionally you're a little too close to things that you don't always know when the change is coming and you don't always know when you're saying goodbye to something but now and then you get a chance to sort of look back and say you know what that really was the end right there you know and um this i think was really the beginning of the end and if it had to end i defy anybody to think of a better way than ron mars writing Green Lantern. And because if cause, and again, I look, I realize that you're kind of done talking about that aspect of the story, but there is one more thing I wanted to mention from the apartment. Go ahead. When when uh, Kyle got the ring, Alex kind of had to, you know, slap him upside the head a few times, tell him to get his act together. You know, and then there were times when he actually did and she expressed true pride in her screw up of a boyfriend he was finally making good on something you know and i wouldn't 
think it's out of line to to say that Kyle has kind of looked for something like that, a, a relationship like that, that motivates him ever since he lost Alex. And he does not get that here. It's like Ron Mars is making the affirmative choice to say that he still wants it. He doesn't need it. He can stand without it. And ultimately, you know, you can have all the inner monologues of Kyle saying, well, I've earned my spot on the JLA. I deserve to be here. All those scenes of him knocking back beers with uh, Jean talking about the glory days and and all of that sort of stuff. But that but that moment where Kyle, met, he, he, he cowboys up all on his own and without the support structures that on some level he's always hoped to regain, he's still able to forage ahead and move into tomorrow. And when you come right down to it, that's an incredibly optimistic note on which to, to end this era of Kyle being not just a Green Lantern, he's still the Green Lantern. And that it's a blink and you miss it moment. But he really has grown and matured, and I just cherish this this story in general, this issue in particular. So anyway, I don't think I can add much to that. Uh, you you completely nailed it. This is this is what I've wanted to see for a very long time with Kyle Rayner. If it did have to come to an end, and obviously all eras do. Having Ron Mars come back to write the character that he created, who, and I agree with you, who is a defining original character, the likes of which could only be rivaled by Jack Knight and Starman. The fact that he's come back to write this character and come back to do this story to sort of close out that era is, is perfect. And I can't argue and I can't disagree with you in any way, shape, or form. Once again, you have done your due diligence and put forth a brilliant, brilliant concept, sir. Thank you. I try my best. Look, I, I got to tell you, you know, when I first started up my show, I did it with the assumption that, you know what, there are exactly three people who have uh, got sort of a monopoly on podcasting, and they are uh, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, Michael Bailey, Sean Engel, right? They're, they, look, everyone's listening to them, so probably no one's going to listen to my show. But I've, I, I got to tell you, from day one, I've always felt like, you know, you were one of the benchmarks that, you know, you that people have got to be ready to measure up to. So, um, you know, I, I've, I've loved your show and I've loved this ride. This has been a, just a phenomenal time, and uh, I've really enjoyed my time here. Thank you for having me. This has been, this has just been amazing. Thank oh, you. I, I appreciate it. It is, it, you know, getting a chance to talk with you again. It's, it's such a pleasure. I, I love your show. Since we're wrapping this up, why don't we go ahead and tell people where they can find you on the internet and what you are doing uh, in coming shows? Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Um. It feels like it's it's was ages and ages ago, but not really. It was only I guess like two years ago. I moved my business from Libsyn over to the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. So my show was Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. So if uh, any any of you listening decide that you want to uh, head on over to uh, my show and uh, listen to what Sean Angle has helped inspire, uh, you know, feel free. Uh, that's uh, you can find it at twotruefreaks.com. Name of the show again is Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And I've got a pretty simple 
I guess, structure and, and uh, formatting of my show. When you think about it, it's really six episodes of whatever I, I feel like talking about at any given moment. The seventh episode is generally an episode of what I've come to call the big book report, where Chris Honeywell from Two True Freaks and I, we talk about one of the DC Paradox press line of big books. And um, fantastic time is always had by all. It's always uh, fun to you know record those shows with them. And then the eighth episode is always, always, always Smallville. And yes. yeah, and I usually just take a handful of episodes, put them through the ringer, what works, what doesn't, what's fun, what sucks. And uh, I, truth is, I love Smallville. I think it's it's probably my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics. And so I think it's just very unappreciated. And so what I'm trying to do is just shine a little bit of light on it, give it a little bit of love. And hopefully show the world that, you know what, there is something here to be enjoyed. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. And then I start the whole thing all over again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Start it all over again. And in relation to that, currently what I'm doing is going through a series that's called Extinction Level Event. And uh, the idea is to talk about those huge, epic, sweeping crossovers from DC and Marvel. And, uh, you know, these are some of these I like more than others. But the idea is to just sit down with people that I've come to consider to be friends and say what did you think about that time when dc or marvel that time when they whatever and it's been a ton of fun and uh, we've got a few more episodes of that before it's finished up and um, then moving into the future i've got this series i'm going to be going through about women in comics and uh, just shining again shining the light on uh, female characters that maybe maybe you've read maybe you haven't and you know hopefully uh, hopefully those will be fairly enjoyable and that'll probably take me towards close to the end of the year. So uh, then after that, who knows, right? Exactly. If you folks aren't listening to Trentus Magnus's show, you're doing yourself disservice. Uh, I, you basically made me reevaluate my opinion on Smallville. I was one of those people who was like, why isn't Superman on the show? I want to see Superman in the show. And, you, your explanations, of the shows, and your 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 synopses of them, and your discussion about it have given me a greater respect for what they were trying to do. And I really, really enjoy every time you get to the eighth episode and do your Smallville show. Those are always, always good listens. Oh well, let's hope you feel that way whenever the fourth season starts. <laughs> now, guys, all bets are off. <laughs> now I've I've heard the fourth season. I I unfortunately wasn't around for the fourth season, so I will probably be, you know, garnering what uh, what that might have been like through your show. But I look forward to it, especially if it's you kind of ripping on stuff because it's always fun to hear you tear something a new one. <laughs> well, as I say, thank you for the compliments. And again, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I love this show. I love this comic. I love this character. Um, there's nothing about this that isn't awesome. So uh, I really appreciate you making the time for me today. This has been great. Oh, no problem, Trentus. Everyone, thank you for downloading and listening. We appreciate it. Next time out, issue 176. Looks like Kyle is going to see if he can work things out with Jenny. Maybe or maybe not. Regardless, I'll be here in seven days. I hope you will be as well. And until then, have a good week, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. 
This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show was Dream Theater and their song Overture 1928 from their album Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. If you like this song, well, you're probably a fan of Trentus Magnus's show. But if you'd like to own this song, the best place to go would be Amazon.com. Of course, the best way to get to Amazon.com would be to go through the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon where you can buy any number of items of music from Dream Theater to Rush to whomever rockin' band you'd like to listen to all at ridiculously low prices. And every time you use the link at twotruefreaks.com, Amazon shoots a little bit of money back to the website. You don't see anything extra taken out of your pocket, but it really does help us out. So whenever you're thinking about buying music, movies, games, or whatever you'd like, make sure you use the link at twotruefreaks.com.